Hi, Eric. Hey there, Aaron. So season three. Should we get started? Yes. Not incredible. Um, yeah. So the idea was that we had for this episode was to kind of introduce some of the themes that we're going to bring into season three. Because um, we kind of sat down and planned it, uh, a, you know, wrote down a bunch of topics that we're interested in covering. And yeah. we've noticed that they've kind of gelled around a central message or a central idea, right? Which hasn't happened in the past. It hasn't happened. We've been kind of just hitting the pieces that we like to talk about, you know, not randomly, but at least not as consistently. <laughs> so I like this tweet from Benjamin Park. Uh, I'm uh, one of our favorite Twitterers based yeah. on number of quotations per episode. <laughs> That's right. We've cited him before. All right. So I'm just going to read you the quote and I'll tell you why I like it. Okay. okay. And I'm sh I think that he is, and he, it's kind of cryptic. And I think he was cryptic on purpose because he's going to fold it into a book project later. That's my current thought. So he well, says, I, yes, he did say that it was, this is something he's learned through writing a book. So I, I don't think you're way off base by making that assumption. <laughs> <laughs> he says, I'm coming to the conclusion that 1933 was the hinge upon which modern Mormonism pivoted. It was the year that B.H. Roberts died and J. Reuben Clark joined the first presidency, thus marking the sunset of one potential Mormon trajectory and the dawn of another. So... Okay, so this is, there's a lot to unpack here. It's a big claim. <laughs> it's um, whether or not he's right I, is an interesting conversation. But first, when I read this, I just didn't even really understand what he's talking about. And so I decided to go down some Wikipedia rabbit holes. Mm. And I read all about B.H. Roberts and all about J. Reuben Clark, at least by all about whatever was on their Wikipedia pages. <laughs> I would imagine they both have pretty good Wikipedia pages. They're quite extensive. So um, I'll give just a quick summary of them, and you can just tell me if you think I'm wrong. How about that? Okay, sounds good. Because <laughs> of my, my deep and abiding expertise in all things. Yes. Right, right. Oh, I should have mentioned. Another thing that we wanted to do with this opener for the season is kind of reiterate some of the approaches that we're going to take in the show, right? Yes, such and, as minimal professionalism. Yeah, one of the approaches is that we're dabblers right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the idea is that we're just two church members who don't have degrees in church history and don't do it for a living. And, but consider that as an advantage because whatever we know is stuff that we learned through church, through seminary, through the last few, you know, X number of decades between us. And um, we think that that is the baseline that we should be starting with. Right. Well, to rephrase that, I think it's not that we are uninterested in expertise. We we honor and respect expertise. Um, and so what we're doing is modeling. If you're just a lay member, like, like, how do you incorporate those things into our lived experience and what we just know from having spent so much time here? Right. With the idea of bringing um, literary critiques from yourself and um, scientific methods from myself to understanding questions about the church and about theology in general. Sure. And through, you know, our Ber unique Berkeley perspective. 
So I with that, that description. With that out of the way, all right, B.H. Roberts, okay? So he was, uh, um, you know, I won't say an early member of the church because he, he was like one of the- Second or third generation? Yeah, he was one of the people that walked across the plains to, the, to, to um, Utah and eventually settled in Utah and was one of the polygamists that went to jail. He's definitely right. a Utah Mormon and not like a Nauvoo Mormon. Yeah. Um, he was also um, a critical thinker, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well-educated. Well-educated. Well-thinking. And towards the, the end of his life, he was tapped by um, one of the brethren to write a critical, a, a critique, a literary critique of the Book of Mormon, right? Yes. And that critique was known as Studies of the Book of Mormon and wasn't published until 1985, right? It was yeah. essentially submitted to the First Presidency, right? That's right. So I'm not actually going to talk much about Well, actually, stuff. I'm just, I don't know how that memorized. I'm just agreeing with you because I, I have no doubt that you have correctly researched those dates. I don't know. Them. <laughs> I, I'm sounding like I know. I don't know. <laughs> so uh, we're not going to go too much into that topic, but except to note that he thought about religion critically and wanted to be completely honest with himself about his understanding of the doctrine, the history of the church and the Book of Mormon itself, right? Yes. And he took a real pragmatic approach to understanding the Book of Mormon, right? Um, like he was trying to defend it against claims that it was plagiarized, right? And so he took a, a, a logical step-by-step -step approach through it. And there's a great deal of debate as to whether or not he agreed with the claims that they were plagiarized at the end of his life. But he claimed until the end that his testimony was intact after all this. Yes. Yeah. And I should also state up front at season three opener that we are also belie believers as That's a right. Word, right. So um, we probably go to church more than you because our church has been on Zoom since the very first week. That's right. <laughs> so there. <laughs> so I took a stab at B.H. Roberts. Want, do you want to take a stab at J. Reuben Clark? Uh, sure. I did not just read the Wikipedia page, but uh -huh. um, he's much more conservative thinker um, in almost any way you could define the word conservative. Uh -huh. um, he is, um, unfortunately, I would say, and I don't think he would be fond of this designation, but he's one of the favorite past general authorities of the Deseret Nation. Mm -hmm. um, he did have issues with racism through his life. It's hard to read his work and not find racism, but on the positive note, every time he had serious interactions with a group of people, he came around on them. Like he did not like Mexicans. And then he was the ambassador of Mexico and he realized they were good people. One likes to think that if he'd lived another two or 300 years, he could have interacted with every people on the earth and come around and seen them as, as um, fully worthy of his respect as well. Um, he, but he was ambassador to Mexico, right? So he, he was, uh, the, the law school was named after him at BYU. He is mm -hmm. um, an important figure uh, in 20th century history in terms of his um, role both as a religious leader and, and um, in law and politics. He's, he's not insignificant to be sure. So he was a member of the first presidency for much of the uh, you know, mid decades of the 1900s. Yes, and correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't he the one whom President McKay moved to second counselor 
He is. Yeah. Yeah. And he's the one that, and then he is the one that has the famous quote where he said that, um, you know, I will serve wherever I'm called. Right. One, when one is called to serve, one serves where one is called. And then he eventually was moved back to first counselor. Um, Yes. One of only two people to be pushed down in the numerical order. mm -hmm. I want to say, is it president Iring? That's correct. Yeah. It just (laughs) happened again just recently. That's right. Um, and just like that time, people often assume that there is a political aspect to this. Um, you know, no matter how much President Clark or President Irene says, you know, it doesn't matter. People see that there's significance to it. So speaking of political, J. Reuben Clark was also heavily involved in Washington. As you said, it was the, he was the ambassador. He wasn't a church ambassador. He was the U.S. ambassador. Right, of the United States of America. Maybe yeah. you've heard of it. Undersecretary to the State Department. I mean, he was a big deal. And then he was brought in as this church leader. So compare and con- So this is, you know, Brother Park, Dr. Park's I quote is that we have one kind of person which was conservative and was... So how would you describe his beliefs, J. Reuben Clark? Which person are we talking about? J. Reuben Clark? Yeah. Um, He's definitely authoritarian, like what the church says goes, um, do what you're told, obedience is the the first law of heaven sort of person. Yeah. And B.H. Roberts is this critical thinker. Now, in this conversation, we are, you know, again, we're novices and we're really oversimplifying the situation. We're trying to we're trying to um, take as good faith um, what Dr. Park is saying is that there's a real contrast between the approach of religion between these two people, when in reality, I'm sure if you wouldn't talk to these people, that it would be no, more nuanced and um, more hard to understand. But for the sake of argument, let's say we have this critical let's, think, let's scientific thinker. As, as man. Yeah, and then this <laughs> conservative... Because we're um, such good thinkers, literal. we're going to reduce them to uh... a <laughs> <laughs> conservative literalist, right? Yes. So, <laughs> so yeah, I'm not in total agreement with that, but that is an interesting way to think about it. But Can the I... point is that I got two observations. Okay, let's hear them. When I read this tweet, the first was what we've been describing is that there was, you know, a lot of approach in the, in B.H. Roberts time to try and unify or harmonize science with religion, right? And then in J. Reuben Clark's time, things became more literal, right? And there's this famous thing with evolution where um, um, this would have been. Well, while you're looking it up, let me let me pitch an appearance I'm making on another podcast this Saturday. Ooh, exciting. Um, special day morning after dark, I play a character who is all about science and religion and putting them together. Oh, that's exciting. Okay. When we have a reference to that, we'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, it'll it'll be up Saturday. So that's probably around the same time you'll be posting this, I imagine. Yeah. So B.H. Roberts wrote this treatise called The Truth, the Way, and the Life, which tried to use contemporary scientific theory to bolster Mormon doctor. But um, there was a conflict, right, with Joseph Fielding Smith, who had been influenced by young earth creationists, right? And so they yes. kind of debated before the quorum of the Twelve of the Apostles, and it was declared a draw, <laughs> right? And so the, the truth, the way, and life was not published until 1994. I'm essentially quoting here again from the Wikipedia. Yeah. 
And the idea was that from then on, the church just didn't take a stance on evolution. Yeah, no stand on evolution. Right? Yeah, so J. Reuben Clark and, and Joseph Fielding Smith, and later on, like Bruce R. McConkie, there's this um, tradition of, of people who are conservative in a way I associate more with evangelicals than Latter-day Saints. Mm-hmm. Um, Ezra Taft Benson would probably fit in this category. Um, and again, like, there's more than one way to Mormon, as Sunstone would put it. So that's fine. <laughs> well, here's the, here's the other part that I wanted to say. My second conclusion from this is that it's reinforcing a new understanding that I'm getting as part of this show that we've been doing, right? Which is that there's doctrine and there's people, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. And it seems, I like that distinction. Right? It seems to me that a lot of the doctrine that we've seen in the early, mid to present church has really changed along with the people that were in leadership positions. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, what, the danger of history is you can't avoid that sort of observation. And which is goes completely against what, you know, I was kind of against my testimony to be, to, to be clear, right? Which is that the church um, has the doctrine, the fullness of the gospel, right? If that's the case, how could it be changing through the last 200 years of history or hundred? Yeah, it really raises the question of what the fullness means. Um, I wish I could give you a source, but I can't remember where I heard this from, but um, someone made the point that the fullness of the gospel is Jesus Christ, the atonement, um, faith, repentance, baptism, those sorts of things like that's the gospel and other things are, are um, tangential and important and not something to ignore, but ultimately they are not the fullness of the gospel. So, but the idea is that this is kind of the theme that we're going to be pursuing, right? Looking at how things have changed over the history of the last 50 years, hundred years in the church and Examining the question of what does it mean to be a revelationary church, one that's changing, and to have what seems like fundamental doctrines being rewritten. And, and how do we think about the people um, who will be casting shadows in this discussion? And with that in mind, can I read you something B.H. Roberts wrote? Yeah, please. This, this is the epigraph to a book I've mentioned many times, um, David O. McKay and the Rise of Modern Mormonism, um, which, is, which is written by Gregory Prince and, and William Robert Wright. Um, this, is their, what, this is the epigraph, as I said, and this is from B.H. Roberts' um, History of the Church. Uh, I believe this is part of his introduction, but it, it doesn't get that specific in the, on the title or not on the epigraph page here. This is a man-sized paragraph, so buckle in. Okay. It is always a difficult task to hold the scales of justice at even balance when weighing the deeds of men. It becomes doubly more so when dealing with men engaged in a movement that one believes had its origin with God and that its leaders on occasion act under the inspiration of God. Under such conditions, to so state events as to be historically exact and yet, on the other hand, so treat the course of events as not to destroy faith in these men nor in their work becomes a task of supreme delicacy and one that tries the soul and the skill of the historian. The only way such a task can be accomplished in the judgment of the writer, meaning B.H. Roberts, 
is to frankly state events as they occurred in full consideration of all related circumstances, allowing the fine, excuse me, allowing the line of condemnation or of justification to fall where it may, being confident that in the sum of things, justice will follow truth and God will be glorified in his work, no matter what may befall individuals or groups of individuals. So this kind of honest approach to the church and its teachings and the gospel, I think is the only way. And honest is even not the right word because honest implies that there could be deception. Um, just this way of shining light on things that were just not well understood and without making value judgments, discussing what happened, right? Yes. That's and, the and historian's task. Right. It is the historian's task. And, and I think going back to what you're just saying, I like, I, it's not dishonest necessarily, but it is a lower form of honesty to hide um, that Joseph Smith put his face into a hat if you're afraid it's going to hurt someone's testimony, right? It's a lower form of honesty, and you're, you're not treating your fellow children of God as equal children of God when you think that they're not worthy of the full amount of information. And I think part of this is our maturity as the church now that we're 200 years old, and um, you look at the New Saints book, which... Um, is the first real comprehensive history of the church published by the church since B.H. Roberts. And we know so much more now and it's so much more thorough. Uh, I think, I think that the church institutionally has come around on this idea that this fuller form of honesty is the right way to examine ourselves. So, okay. This is the approach that we want to take here. I mean, Again, it just feels like we set up J. Reuben Clark as a bad guy here. But I <laughs> yeah, want to point out that... Yeah, I guess we picked Team Roberts. <laughs> yeah, we did pick Team Roberts. I want to point out, though, just to make sure people know that, you know, J. Reuben Clark's work on things like um, church welfare is still... you His quotes and his philosophy on it still forms the core of our program, right? I mean, he was really influential, sure. influential and did a lot of... A really a lot of good. Yeah, our, our point is good people are still people and all people have problematic aspects to them. Mm -hmm. And maybe we're a little more sympathetic, me and you, to the problematic aspects of B.H. Roberts over J. Reuben Clark, perhaps, mm -hmm. but it doesn't mean that either of them was perfect. Yeah, I mean, like um, I said that earlier, B.H. Roberts was a polygamist and also had um, issues with some race, from what I understand. Um, yeah, we've, we've come down in favor of uh, anti-racism and against polygamy over the course of the show. So mm -hmm. at least that's, I'm not, I'm not convinced about that last point, but yeah. <laughs> well, I got this point about B.H. Roberts and racism. There's nothing on it in his Wikipedia page. Oh yeah. I, I, don't, I, don't, Twitter. I mean, he was a person of his time and no matter how um, impressively forward thinking he was, I'm sure he had but he was just as we do today. He was this, the, right. It's this, but this is the rational discourse that we want to do. What we want to do on this show is approach topics and really try to find bias and really try to find, find issues with the thinking that we've done in the past. Um, okay, great. So that's, that's, that, that's what I wanted to say about, about B.H. Roberts and Jake Rubin Clark. Um, if, if I, we're gonna put some links to, of course, this tweet from Dr. Park, um, the three Wikipedia, particles, Wikipedia articles of interest 
about these two men and about the studies of the Book of Mormon that Roberts wrote, which are important. We're not going to yeah. Not and say if that I they are. if I can find it in time, I'll also include a very amusing comic about B. H. Roberts, which we're not going to talk about here because I can't show it to Aaron yet, but it'll be in the show notes. <laughs> I'm sure I'll find it by the time it goes live. So okay. So with that said, we just as we were saying about. B.H. Roberts, right, the scientific approach. So I wanted to give a demonstration <laughs> yes. of this kind of, kind of approach to a theological topic. Um, and I've been talking to a friend of mine who listens to our show, and one of his com and he's not a member of the church, and one of his comments was, I really enjoy when you guys talk about theology, right? You know, all that Mormon stuff I'm not that in, not as into, but it's, it's interesting. <laughs> Right? But he really likes it when we go deep on, some, on, on the doctrine. So we're going to spend some time this season doing that, some time this season talking about history and current issues and things. But wanted to give a crunchy topic. Okay. So crunchy in the board game community, right, <laughs> is a phrase that means um, deeply mechanical, right? It's the, okay. you know, if, you're, if, if, if it's Monopoly, it's how much rent you pay, right, and how it scales with the board position, you know, it's analyzing the probability of the spaces to figure out okay. or, orange is best because people go to jail and get out of jail and land on the orange ones. You know, it's that kind of analysis. That's crunchy. So it's not necessarily the rules of gameplay. It's how much work you put into cracking gameplay open to for efficiency or whatever. Another way to think about it is that the mechanics of the game, the rule set and how to play is the crunchy part of it. And the fluff is all the, the flavoring of it, like, <laughs> right? right? So we've talked about this before, um, but I had a question when I, uh, uh, and it was about, about baptism and the remission of sins. So this is our crunchy topic. I, I wanted to give a, a, bit, a bit of background here. About, wow, um, about 16 years ago, maybe 14 years ago, I was in Pasadena and I just was thinking about this talk about, topic about baptism, and I realized that I had several questions about the church. Right? This was a really formative moment, moment for me. <laughs> One of them Without was, this moment, there is no face and hat podcast. I, I think that's correct. And I kind of settled on three questions that I didn't know the answer to. We've talked about these questions here amongst ourselves, but I thought I'd bring them up on the show at this point. One of them is this question about baptism, which we're going to get into. Another one was about evolution. You know, did man evolve from apes? And we talked about that in season two. And the third question is about the Holy Ghost. You know, who is the Holy Ghost? Mm. And what is his relationship to us? And that's going to be a topic for an episode later in this, in this season. Yes. So, and, and, and when we get to that, we, I will have to begin by taking issue with and you just used in that sentence. But that's for later. That's yeah, the for pronoun. Later. <laughs> Which is interesting. It's exciting. So, but here, uh, so what I found was that I didn't know the answer to these questions, and I thought that was really interesting, and that it was fun. And, you know, when it was just later that I thought that I had a, enough of these had piled up that it was time to <laughs> maybe start thinking about it as a show. So, do you need to be baptized to be forgiven of your sins? And we, oh, I should also mention, we did this briefly in one of our earliest episodes, but I don't, I didn't think we did it justice and I wanted to hit it harder. Okay. So that's the question. Do you need to be baptized to be forgiven of your sins? 
it's an interesting question because um, I don't think we can answer without getting to a, just trying to figure out what sin is. Okay. Because what what sorts of things qualify as sins of which one must be re, um, re, remitted, which must be re, trying to think how to phrase the sentence. Remitted is fine. Remitted, yeah. <laughs> remitted of or just remitted? What's great about this question is that there's so much baked into it, right? Um, the, the What is baptism, right? Mm -hmm. What is sin and what is forgiveness of it? And what is need? Why would one need to do anything, right? Yeah. So let's, let's start. I know you want to jump right to... You want to jump right? Do you want to jump right to sin, Eric? No, actually, I, I'm 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 eager to discuss like this question about sin because um, I've been spinning around it lately. But mm -hmm. I, I don't think it's the only road in front of us. Let's talk about baptism first. So, in our church, we have baptism, right? By immersion, yes. uh, fully submersed. Um, this is a question I ask my kids on occasion. Um, baptism is an ordinance. What's an ordinance? And there's a correct definition. Oh, let's have it. Um, well, I was going to quiz you first. What's oh. the, what do you think it is? <laughs> um, I suppose I would say an ordinance is something physical, something temporal that we do with our bodies that has um, spiritual significance in the sense that um, we are change spiritually in some way through this physical action. Yeah, that's great. So the definition that I heard, I'm sure it's written down in some manual that I pulled this from. <laughs> this, is, is, this is very authoritative. <laughs> yeah, this is anti-face and hat right here. Yeah. But an ordinance is a ceremony with a physical meaning and a spiritual, and a spiritual effect. So it's a ceremony, meaning it's, as you say, something you do with our bodies. It has a physical meaning, in this case, the death of the person and the rebirth of that person or the death of Christ and the rebirth of Christ. And the spiritual effect is the remission of sins. We believe that the first principles and ordinances of the gospel are first, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, second, repentance, third, baptism by immersion for the remission of sins, and fourth, the laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost. That's article in faith, like four. So is remission and forgiveness, do you feel they are the same thing? See, this is exactly where the questions need to go. But I feel like there's even more context that we need to put into place before we can even answer that question. I want to go back to the phrase need, right? <laughs> that, it's just a word. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we need to be baptized, be forgiven of our sins. To Why? Well, to enter the celestial kingdom. That's the idea, right? Yeah, this gets to the whole because God says so thing, which is going to come up again when we get to sin. All right, I'm going to read from Gospel Topics. Okay, I've got the Gospel Topic on Baptisms here in front of me, on baptism. Okay. And the reason I wanted to bring this up is that it's very succinct. One of the things the, this Gospel Topic doesn't do is go deep on its definition of terms and its statements of first principles, right? And I don't mean first principles in ordinance of the gospel. I mean like first principles in terms of geometry, where these are the things that we assume are true, and then we build on top of them. Yeah, I was. Uh, there's a fancier word for that, though. I was just like, trying to remember it. Postulate. 
postulate. No, yeah, I needed post, to no, use axiom. No, axiom, axiom, axiom. That's the word. Yeah. I needed to use that word in the other podcast, and I could not remember it, so <laughs> I stumbled around it. But. Yeah. All those who seek eternal life must follow the example of the Savior by being baptized and receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost. Read that uh, again, please. All those, all who seek eternal Wait, life. Sorry, which, I thought we, I thought we were, what word are we, is this defining right now? Baptism. Baptism. Okay, give it to me again. Yep. All who seek eternal life must follow the example of the Savior by being baptized and receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost. You know, quoting from... Okay. From the from the New Testament, yeah, you have to be baptized. You have to believe and be baptized to be saved. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's interesting because um, it seems clear to me that this is a reference to getting into the celestial kingdom. Mm -hmm. But all three degrees of glory are, in fact, degrees of glory. And, What's a degree of glory? Uh, I don't know, <laughs> uh, but it does imply that your sins are gone by the time you get to those, but only baptism is necessary for the top one. So that might suggest that baptism isn't necessary for forgiveness, whatever that means, mm -hmm. uh, because you'll be out of that everlasting hell before you go to a degree of glory and everybody makes yeah. theirs. So. so here's where the real crunchiness sets in. <laughs> the, the terrestrial kingdom really muddles the water to answering this question. So, you know, let's talk about the vision. So what is the vision? The vision, DNC 76, in which he, uh, he meaning Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon, see this vision of the three degrees of glory and the complicated afterlife mm -hmm. that is um, new to this new faith. And yeah, pretty different from what other Christians were believing in 18, whatever, whatever. Yeah, you talked about this about this on your show, or on your um, fireside about the first vision, and I, I thought it was really cool that this was the vision, right? And then later, the yeah. first vision was, the, you know, the title first was because we already had a vision, right. right? So there's a great video on the church website that talks about the significance of the of the vision of DNC seventy six, and how. It came at a time where there was this real debate in evangelical thinking between those who were universalists, yeah, who believed everybody got there, got into heaven, right, and those who were essentially Cal Calvinists. That can't be right. Uh, Calvinists are an example of this other option where um, some do and some don't, right? And it's sort of up to God. Yeah, but it's fact is that there's this elect, right? I think maybe yes. that wasn't Calvinism. Maybe that was a different sect. But there was the elect, and it's not, there's not very many people, though. That's the point. Only yeah. a few people get in, or millions don't. So the first vision, no, no the vision, <laughs> says <laughs> there are these degrees, actually. The celestial kingdom, the terrestrial kingdom, and the telestial kingdom. Yeah. And as you say, you need to be baptized to get into the, into the celestial kingdom. And we know that because, well because there's there's documentation <laughs> right well it, but but part of the reason the vision was so controversial when it came out is because it is a universalist doctrine everyone is saved to to some extent right like the celestial kingdom is a new kind of heaven with with new rewards previously unimagined um 
the lower kingdoms are more like a traditional heaven and everybody's getting there. I mean, Brigham Young said that this is what shook him as much as anything Joseph Smith ever said. The idea that everyone was going to get saved, like that's, that doesn't seem right. Yeah, this video talks about Brigham Young and how he had to, you know, he didn't reject it at a hand, but he had to really study it and really work on it before he got there, right? It yeah. wasn't just, oh, okay, that's great. It was, this is really challenging. What, right? what good is it being saved, Aaron, if everybody's saved? <laughs> if nobody's going to hell, why do I care that I'm saved? <laughs> right? Um, oh, here's another quote for, again from the Gospel Talkbook. It is the first saving ordinance of the gospel and is necessary for an individual to become a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and to receive eternal salvation. So we know that you can't get into the celestial kingdom without being baptized. You are forgiven of your sins through this whole process. Christ takes upon himself your burden. And we'll get into the, I want to spend some time on your ideas here but let's let's take the canonical well, definition first. Uh, I'm a little uncomfortable with um, what you just said. Like, it's not like Jesus is hanging around waiting to see if he'll get baptized before he takes on your sins. Like, he's taken on the sins of the world already. Uh, so the atonement is infinite. Uh, it doesn't matter whether we accept it or not. It is just as large. It doesn't become larger or smaller or smaller based on whether we buy in. To this timeshare of heaven or not. Um, Jesus did something that is so unimaginably large that infinite is the only correct term. And whether we get baptized or not doesn't affect whether or not the atonement exists or is large or small. It has something, it does something for us, but it doesn't change the nature of the atonement when we get baptized. All right. I think I'm in total agreement on that. So let's jump then to the celestial kingdom, because this is also fairly easy to understand in terms yes, of what is necessary. as it's been known since uh, circa 1940, the Hitler kingdom. Oh, jeez. <laughs> it took us three seasons, but, but uh, we finally fulfilled the, the goal of the internet. <laughs> Godwin's law. Okay, we got there. Godwin's law. <laughs> yes, Godwin's law is finally in effect. Um, okay. <laughs> um, the idea but in the terrestrial kingdom, the, sorry, see, I, even I, I've been in the church a long time and can get it wrong. The idea <laughs> well, in the celestial, celestial kingdom. Well, appears to be a totally made up word, so. <laughs> oh, okay. I don't know about that. What do you mean by yeah, that? Yeah, it's not clear what it, I mean, the word doesn't exist before the vision, and it's not really clear where it comes from or what it's supposed to mean. Well, that's fascinating. Um, that is not something I knew. Mm. That makes me immediately want to start Googling. Yeah, um, there's, there, there are theories, of course. Like, for instance, tele can mean from afar, like, or from a distance. And, and that's a nice theory. Like, it's the furthest kingdom from God. But we don't know that that's true. And there are some other compelling theories that have been proposed, too. It's a fun, it's a fun little Google hole to go down. The point is that if you read the, the DNC 76, it tells you that the celestial kingdom folks are those that essentially denied Christ in the terms of accepting his atonement, mm -hmm. right? Um, I they're still read saved it. in a significant way. Yeah, we'll get to that in a second. Um, let's see. The glory of the celestial, which glory is that of the lesser, even as the glory of the stars differs from that of the glory of the moon in the firmament. These are they who receive not the gospel of Christ, 
neither the testimony of Jesus, right? These are they who are thrust down to hell. So this is a particularly Mormon interpretation of the word hell, right? Sure. Which essentially means, um, well, paying for your own paying paying for your own sins, really. Yeah. Right. Being this apart from God. Being apart from God. It's rejection of Jesus's atonement, and just saying, well, okay, I'm going to do it myself. <laughs> yeah. And um, taking on that same burden, essentially that, uh, you know, all right, like DNC 19 tells us. Eternal punishment is God's punishment. Endless punishment is oh, God's yeah, okay. covenant. Therefore, I command you to repent. Repent, lest I smite you by the rod of my mouth, and by my wrath and by my anger, and your sufferings be sore. How sore ye know not, how exquisite ye know not, yea, how hard to bear ye may know, ye know not. But for behold, I, God, have suffered these things for all, that they might not suffer if they would repent. But if they would not repent, they must suffer even as I which suffering caused myself, even God, the greatest of all, to tremble because of pain and to bleed every pore, and to suffer both body and spirit, and would that I might not drink the bitter cup and shrink. Nevertheless, glory be to the Father, and I partook and finished my preparations unto the children of men. Eric, there is no more powerful verse of scripture to me than those verses right there, right? Those verses of scriptures have gotten me misty-eyed like more than more than any other verses, except maybe those, the first vision itself. Yeah, it's 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 some of the best writing in the Doctrine and Covenants too. It's um, just so powerful. The 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 M dash there at the end of verse eighteen, and would that I might not drink the bitter cup and drink. Like as far as I know, that is the only time in Scripture God can't finish a sentence, um, and He just has to be like, nevertheless, glory yeah. be to the Father, like. It's heavy. It's heavy stuff. So for this conversation, the point being that, uh, ah, so great. Okay. So the point being that, um, yeah, telestial kingdom. This is, this do it is, yourself. Uh, do it yourself. So now, so in between there is the terrestrial kingdom, right? I suppose it's kind of like, um, I don't know. I'm thinking about Dante and maybe I shouldn't. I'm thinking about... <laughs> I Virgil, who, who took, um, you know, who took Dante through hell, and he was necessarily in hell, but he was a good person and and didn't really suffer or anything. And, um, or maybe it's more like Purgatorio. I don't know. I don't know. Like, there isn't a, a perfect parallel in any other Christian faith that I know of. It's it's a unique idea. These are they who are honorable men of the earth, but were blinded by the craftiness of men, who receive of his glory, but not his fullness. Right. In other words, essentially, they did accept Christ, right? Mm -hmm. But are they baptized? Oh, I don't think they, I think as I have been taught, um, I'm not prepared to back this up, um, but my understanding is they don't have to be. Mm -hmm. So, therefore, that requires you, Eric, to make the following statement. It is not necessary to be baptized to be forgiven of your sins. But yeah. I tell you, if you make that statement, something <laughs> feels off about it. Do you think it's just the matter of repetition? We've heard the opposite so many times. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. And this is why this question has always fascinated me. So this goes back to when I was a missionary. I learned the discussions and the way you teach this topic 
is you talk about faith, repentance, baptism, and the gift of the Holy Ghost. But you teach repentance before baptisms. And the five steps of repentance, right, do not include the word baptism, right? And so this idea is that you can be forgiven of your sins even before you're baptized as a preparation to being baptism to kind of seal it. That was kind of some of the ideas we had. But there's two things that are fascinating here. First, I don't know the answer to the question, right? Yeah. And the second thing is, isn't that interesting that something that is so, it feels like this should be something that I can look up, right, in a manual and say, okay, mm -hmm. you need this and this and this to get into the celestial kingdom, this and this to terrestrial, and this and this for the telestial. But if this most important thing to me seems just a bit fuzzy. Yeah. Um, I think I, that's, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully someone is listening who can tell us uh, which theologians have answered this question in great detail and we can read them and be dissatisfied. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's, I think it's very, it's very interesting. So yeah, I've not been able to come down one way or the other towards this question. It also is something that doesn't really matter very much. Let's be clear. This is sure. really a minutia. And our, our tagline is miscellany. This is miscellany, right? Yes. One of the reasons we know very clearly what the requirement of the celestial kingdom is, is because that's what we should be attaining for, right? Yeah. Um, I wrote a letter to Salt Lake and I got a form letter back and it's at our, but filled in the gaps and it said, no, people don't have to listen to face and have to go to the celestial kingdom otherwise, because <laughs> we don't offer proxy face and hat listening. And it's really humbling, but similar, similar circumstance, I guess. <laughs> So, okay, Eric, punt. <laughs> what is, um, what's your deal with this word sin? Well, I read an article in Sunstone a few months ago, um, and it started with like questioning the very, like it's titled, Questions the Very Existence of Sin. And I was like, okay, Sunstone, here's an article that is going to be ridiculous. I won't even probably be able to finish yeah. Uh, because it's just so absurd. Uh, and it wasn't absurd, actually. It was not absurd at all. Um, let me read to you um, a couple paragraphs. Uh, by the way, this is the, the title of the article is Sin Does Not Exist and Believing That It Does Is Ruining It. Ruining Us. <laughs> this is like S. the most clickbaity. Oh, it's so clickbaity. So clickbaity. Yeah. That's the same title I had in the paper magazine, too, back when there still was a paper magazine. Well, this was only um, 2019. That's not too long ago. No, they, they have... Um, Moved entirely to podcast and online forms. Oh, so the original um, article was when? Uh, I think it, I think it was just last year. I think oh, it was okay. in the last. It was either in the last uh, regular magazine or the first one of their annuals that they have now. Okay. Um, so, so let me uh, let me read this to you. So, I'm skipping down. Oh, I don't know, a sixth of the way. Oh, you got to give a definition of sin first. Oh, okay, yeah. So he defines sin as, um, he says, the LDS Bible Dictionary, surprisingly, does not offer a definition of sin, but the official website does. So this is probably from the same source you've been getting your definition. The topics. Yeah. It, so somewhere on the website, it defines sin as willful disobedience to God's commandment. To commit sin is to willfully disobey God's commandments or to fail to act righteously despite a knowledge of the truth. How do you feel about that definition of sin? I think that's the one I've been working on. Okay. So sin is willful disobedience to God's commandments. You, you, you take that as fact. 
Yeah, and I have to say up front, it's going to be hard for this guy to convince me otherwise. <laughs> All right. Well, he has Socrates on his side. So, maybe walk, you know. walk me through the argument. Okay. So I'm going, to, I'm going to read you this paragraph about road signs. Okay. One afternoon, while driving a passenger in my taxi, I passed a park that had a playground perhaps 75 yards from the road and was about a quarter of a mile around the bend from a school. Because the park was just outside the vicinity of the school and the playground was on the other side of the park, the road by the park qualified as neither a playground zone nor a school zone. And consequently, the speed limit on the road was not reduced. My customer and I were passing this park shortly after the nearby school had been dismissed. And as there were children playing near the road, I adjusted my speed accordingly. Within a few moments, my customer, slightly annoyed, observed that I must be from out of town. When I asked him why, he said that it was because I had slowed down on that road, although it was not a playground zone. His implication was, that had he been in the driver's seat, unless legally obligated to, he would not have slowed down while passing the children. Had I been motivated, I could have asked him, loosely paraphrasing the question Socrates put to Euthyphro. Oh, Dana, oh, I practiced this all afternoon and now I can't say it. <laughs> Euthyphro, I think, I think accent on the first syllable, I believe. Euthyphro, okay. is it good to slow down for the children because the sign says so, or is the sign put there because it is good to slow down for the children? Aaron, what do you think? It is good to slow down for the children, and the sign was put there because of that. Okay. Well, if that's the case, um, why do you need the sign to tell you? <laughs> that's great. <laughs> and I feel like Socrates has set a trap for me. Yes, that's all <laughs> Socrates does. That's all he does. That is his entire MO. Yeah, um, that's what he does. So I think this is real philosophy here, right? Okay, let me ask you a follow-up question from a couple paragraphs later. Mm -hmm. What if the sign said school zone 90 miles per hour while passing children? You shouldn't obey. Well, okay, that sign would be fraudulent. <laughs> <laughs> what, if, what, if, what if the city government has decided that to uh, solve the budget crisis, we need to call a few children, and that's right. where the sign is up. <laughs> now, obviously, like, I'm leaning towards an evil god, which is not what I want to do, but that's the problem uh, as wait, wait, he goes wait. on to establish. Was, oh, what you, you, you had a comment to make. You go first. No, I was going to say, what is the uh, needle god? What's the word you used? An evil god. Evil oh, an god. evil god. Yeah. Evil god. Right. Who tells you to do bad things, and therefore it would be sin not to do those things. Right, right. Yeah, okay. So the philosophy here, I think what you're leaning towards is, um, well, is morality absolute? That's the, that's the real question. Sure. Yeah, I, I guess you could put it that way. Right. And I did take, <laughs> I did take an ethics course in college. <laughs> <laughs> I just feel so pretentious having said that. Um, but I did. And it might be good was, if more people did. It was very interesting, at least. And we went through all kinds of ethics, right? Ver you know, I don't remember the names by now, but ethics, which say you should do good because it's good versus you should be good because it's socially good and, and those kind of Utilitarian things. Utilitarian arguments, those kind yeah, of things. Yeah, those kind of arguments. So is this, okay, but how does this relate then to the concept of, of sin? Well, you agreed, Aaron. Yeah. You said that sin is willful disobedience of God. Right. Therefore, if I uh, do bad things without knowing God has said it, they're no longer bad, or at least they're not sin. Uh, similarly, if I do good things 
just because I do good things and not because I know God said it. It's that is not that all of a sudden morality is wrapped up in what God says. So the, the Euthyphro dilemma is if something is good because God says it's good, then or versus um, some, something is good, irrelevant to whether God says it's good or not. If it's the latter, then God is no longer in charge of morality. And if you want to believe in a God, uh, like in a, in a universe that comes completely out of God, which isn't really the Mormon idea of God, then um, all of a sudden morality is outside God and that weakens God. I, I think you just said that's not really the idea of Mormon reality, but there is the there is a scripture that says everything that is good comes from from either God or Christ. Mm-hmm. Right. Is, is that, am I not, am I remembering well, how, wrong? How can that be true though? If, if evil doesn't also come from God, you know what I'm saying? Like we, we get wrapped in these, um, these problems. Well, we of, also, you know, are, I could argue it in a different way. Are we really a polytheistic church? Right. Well, it depends on what you think Theo means. Do we, be- <laughs> other than a character on the Cosby show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, in other words, if, so the question is, does good exist independent from God? Yes, Just without that, having read this, without, right, without having read the article or studied it carefully, I would say that the answer is yes. And I give two, two pieces of evidence. The first is the sentence man is as God once was, God is as man can become. Yeah. Which is something we talked about in our exaltation episode, right? And that implies yeah. generations of, of deities, right? Okay. And so that would imply something existing without them. Right. Which is what I mean when I say that that Mormon theology, our, our theology of Latter-day Saints, is in some ways exempt from this dilemma. <clears throat> but not entirely. I can't remember what the other one I was going to say is. Uh, go ahead. <laughs> um, well, to go back to um, our article, if, if uh, since it only exists... If... Oh, I remembered my other one. Oh, go ahead. Right. This phrase that um, if you obey the commandments, then God is bound. Yes. Right? In other words, that God is bound to do what he says he's bound by honor right so it seems almost like there's some power uh, no <laughs> okay you cut out there a bit but okay <laughs> oh, well no that was that was yeah i i don't think god is bound by honor not to say that he doesn't have honor but god is bound when we do what he says in my my opinion not because of this concept that god says things therefore they're the right thing to do but god is operating according to whatever these natural laws are that exist outside him. And so when God tells us to do something, it's because it's already the right thing to do. And, and when we obey those, he's bound to do what he does because that's just the natural consequence. Like I, I feel like you don't need to have, um, this is why the question of whether like sin is necessary for this, uh, like is sin necessary for this system to work? Because what's the difference then between disobeying a natural law and um, disobeying God, if they're the same, what what exactly is the meaning of sin in that case? Right. Because because it's no longer whether or not God commands it. If like I think 
your average human being agrees that um, murder is bad. Whether they believe God told them that murder is bad or not, most people believe that. And if you need God to tell you murder is bad or you will commit murder, are you really more moral than someone who just doesn't kill people because they know it's wrong, regardless of whether or not God told them? Hmm. So um, if we know what's right, then we either need to redefine sin as just doing wrong things and leaving God out of it, or perhaps sin doesn't exist because it's not really whether God told us or not. There's, there's more to it than that. Yeah, this is great. Yeah, I don't know that I have answers for these off the top of my head. Okay, so let's, well, tell me what the conclusion here of this article is then. Well, let me, let me scroll down because I'm only about halfway through it. <laughs> mm -hmm. it, it is a good article. I really, I really do recommend, I, I'm not asking people to agree with him that sin doesn't exist, right. but I think his arguments, convinced. yeah, his, his arguments are really compelling and interesting and um, something he talks about, she shares some personal experiences where um, he was teaching some class, I believe he's a professor of philosophy or ethics or something, and I, I'm not sure where, and he asked the class uh, a question about whether if there were no if, if God didn't tell you to beat your wife, would it be okay? And um, four people raised their hands, uh, and all three of the males who raised their hands were Latter-day Saints. And one of them explicitly said to the class that if God didn't tell him to beat his wife, there would be nothing to stop him. Mm, ouch. Um, that does not sound like a moral person who should be in the celestial kingdom to me at all. Mm -hmm. Like this idea that obedience is the first law of heaven can, is a handy little phrase, but ultimately, what obedient to what? And if obedience is all we're capable of, then we're we haven't, like we haven't grown. We're not worthy of anything more. If all we can, it's we're slothful servants, right? We can only do what we're told. Um, okay, we'll keep going. So, and this this comes back to the baptism question more generally, because um, I read, I, I can remind me to look for it, I'll try to find it. There was a thread on uh, Twitter recently, uh, someone was talking about, um, but there was this argument that one of, one of the um, sort of principles of the way we present ourselves as the church is that we have a monopoly on ordinances, right? We have a monopoly on, on the path into heaven, um, which you know, that's what our baptism conversation in the celestial kingdom is about, right? That's that's what we're talking about. Um, but the problem with that is like, then this whole like doing whatever your leaders tells you instead of doing the right thing that you know to be right becomes like that balance becomes problem. And this is a B.H. Roberts versus J. Reuben Clark issue, right? Um, someone like Bruce R. McConkie or Joseph Fielding Smith or people in the Clark School would say, yes, you do what you're told. That's the most important thing. Um, and this this gets, you may have seen in the show notes, I, men I mentioned the uh, Abrahamic trial in my in parentheses next to this article. I really wonder if that's what an Abrahamic trial really is. Like when we're, when we're told to do something that is wrong, um, what sort of faith do we have? Do we do what we're told no matter what, or we do, do we do the right thing even though it's contrary. And, and if that's the case, which one is sin? Is it doing the right thing because you know it's right? 
or is it doing the wrong thing because God said so? Um, that's that's a real complicated trial. Well, is it isn't it a false? I think I feel like it's a false pretense, right? That God would tell you to do the wrong thing. Well, that that means that there was a really good reason for God to play his little prank on Abraham and tell him to kill his son. Don't just get in. <laughs> gotcha, man. Yeah. You could say the same thing. It's about, a really problematic story. It's a real problematic story. I feel like we should do, do a whole show on it. We could totally and, do a whole show on it. In fact, I think it's in our notes somewhere. Like yeah, we should do, do on that someday. To do one. Um, okay. I mean, what sort of God do we believe in? One who always tells us to do what's right, in which case, we can learn what's right and shouldn't need to be told anymore or a God who just wants us to do whatever he says. And it's usually the right thing, maybe even always the right thing, but ultimately we're just doing what we're told. Yeah. I think we believe in a God who understands that it's really sometimes hard to know what's right and wrong. And that will take into account this, in final judgment. <laughs> and where as long as we're sincere and try that we can learn and grow. Right. But I, yeah, I, I don't think that I would agree with the pre with the pretense. I mean, I don't know how to interpret the Abrahamic challenge. Um, I've never known. That's why I think we should maybe talk about it some other time. Well, another solution Bell Rock says that we as Latter-day Saints sometimes propose, and I think it's a very compelling argument and one that needs to be considered um, whenever you find yourself in one of these dilemmas where what's being said and what's right seem to conflict, is, is there a possibility that <clears throat> the reason this is right is something that we can't understand because we don't have the longer view of history? Uh, this is what Nephi assumed he was being told when he killed Laban, right? That yeah. for, for reasons of the next thousand years, it's important that they kill this person, even though that's a wrong thing to do. Um, but that's a really, you know, how many of us, yeah. So it's interesting. I didn't think that we would get here, but this conversation about doing what's right because you're told without really knowing what's going on it is kind of one of the central themes that we're going to be exploring this year, mm. which, yes, which, is. which is the idea of, I mean, the 1978 proclamation is just the best example of this, right? Yeah, it really is. Where black people couldn't hold the priesthood until 1978 for reasons that looking back over the last 150 years were probably just racism, Yeah. right? Without <laughs> having any... Any, I mean, I say there's no reason to pretend there are good reasons. There's no there good reasons. Any. There yeah. weren't any good reasons, right? And so this is exactly, I think, what you're trying to get at is that there's this real dilemma. What part of this whole business was sinful that needs repentance? And what part was wrongheaded thinking that was eventually corrected? And I don't and is the whole <laughs> discussion missing something? <laughs> I think what it's you're saying It's a hard is... question because if you, um, I mean, there were people throughout the history of the church who spoke out against the race ban. There were always examples of people who 
thought it was the wrong thing and said as much. And, um, and so there was room, I think, I think, although excommunications tend to get a lot of press, I think there's always been room in the church for, um, holy dissent. Mm -hmm. However, uh, if it came down to like, I really feel that it's, it's 1977, Aaron, mm -hmm. and your state president says, if you say the race ban is bad one more time, I'm excommunicating you. No questions asked. Like, is that, is that a compromise, right? Doing the right thing versus, um, and you'll be justified just 18 months from now, though, you don't know that yet. Um, is it justified to do the right thing and be cut off? I, Jesus, um, or not, excuse me, I think it was Peter said to Jesus, like, where else will we go, right? But as far as we know, Jesus never told his followers to um, do any of the erroneous things that sometimes happen in a church led by human beings, like the race ban. Um, but when you have a monopoly on salvation, then, you know, you put people in a bind where we're trying to do the right thing and trying to do um, trying to do the right thing and trying to be obedient. There will be times in human history where they don't match. So I skipped down to in this article and I'm finding that there's a proof. <laughs> oh yeah. You, you will like that one. I think. That moment. That the end of the proof says even QED. It does. It's, it's so, so this, this it's, pushes all my buttons. <laughs> so shall we just uh, examine it? Sure. Okay. Sin is real if and only if divine command theory is true. Yeah, this is definitional. We've defined sin as willful disobedience of God. So, right. And so there's a statement sin here. Is. Sin is real if and only if this theory is true. If it's correct, then one of the following statements is correct. Number one, the virtue of an act is something that is known to God. Therefore, God says it is virtuous. Or an act is virtuous because God says it is virtuous. Okay, so okay. we are the first one. The virtue of an act is something that is known to God. Therefore, God says it is virtuous. In other words, there's something about an act that is intrinsically virtuous and God knows right. about it, right? Right. We are compelled to eject number one because it means that God is irrelevant to morality. Okay. In other words, in other words, God, it doesn't matter what God says. It doesn't says. matter what God says. Yeah. Okay. Then we are compelled to reject two because it leads to the absurd conclusion that morality is random and that immortal acts, immoral acts would be moral if God so commanded. And there, if both one and two are false, then the theory is false. Both one and two are false. Therefore, the theory is false. Therefore, sin is not real. I just, look, <laughs> I think this is an interesting thing to write down, but I think you can poke holes on all different kinds of places here. Well, in the second half of the article, goes through those holes and, and talks about whether, you know, how we should feel about them. We've already mentioned a couple of them, but go ahead. Yeah. The one that just jumps right out to me is um, the fact that the virtue of an act is something that is known to God. Therefore, God says it is virtuous, right? 
Yeah. It's the statement that sin can only exist. Maybe it's the whole definition, right? Willful. Yeah. The question is like, maybe we need to reject that definition of sin. Yeah. Willful disobedience of a, of a commandment of God. But yeah, because we do tend to say that um, people who don't know are innocent, right? But now we're suggesting that maybe morality isn't, is larger than simply what God says. So are people committing sin if they act against what they know to be good? Or what is sin? I mean, to me, this is why the eight-year-old rule makes a lot of sense. Because yeah. there's a sense that the moral compass perhaps is not developed to a point where you know what's right and wrong. But anyone over eight has some sense of right and wrong. And you don't need to go to Sunday school to be taught that. So I think that I'm going to appeal to humanity. All right. So let me give you, I'm going to come back to this point, but let me tell you a story. I took a class in, so I took a class in which we were talking about simulations. Okay. And we've mentioned this before. We talked about substrate and the existence of a brain, right? Is it possible to simulate a person? Yeah. And at the end of the conversation, I proffered the following conversation. I don't feel like I'm in a simulation. Yes. Is that enough? Mm -hmm. Right. And there was no good response. So here's what I can tell you about sin and the atonement. Right. I really have felt guilt from past actions. Mm -hmm. And I really have felt that go away through the, uh, through the atonement. Right. This is, and those are real, I mean, to, to me at least, <laughs> regardless of neurochemistry and <laughs> the existence of God entirely, to me, those were real experiences. So I feel like I have to approach this argument under that basis, right? Well, can I, can I ask a quick question before you continue? Yeah. Is it necessary to have sin as currently constituted to need forgiveness or to need the atonement. I think Is that I would only say disobedience that, God that matters. I actually think that I'm interested in this definition itself. Um, I think that the definition itself, willing disobedience to God's commandments is useful, right? In on a base level of just teaching the concept. But yeah. I, I mean, we should have some trust in God or else why would we worship him? Yeah. But I do like the idea of, of the fact that it could be a lot more complicated that, than that. Um, I heard this one excellent argument that the whole point behind the atonement, because the atonement is infinite, mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not an, the idea behind the atonement is not to be so much suffering for so much sin, right? And I have a whole... I wanted to cover this in detail at some point, but the idea behind the atonement is that it's infinite, right? One man cannot pay for the life of another. Yeah. So the only way to do this is through some infinite act. And what happens is that, is that the, when, when God, when you're presented before God at the last days, you know, Christ is your advocate and says, this person does not deserve to enter. 
but I paid the ultimate price. Let him enter anyway, or her enter anyway. And that everybody there will have recognized the enormity of the sacrifice that Christ made and said, yep, I agree. Justice and mercy are both served, right? Yeah. And so it's not like there's this itemized list of problems, but it's more this infinite and hard to understand thing. And the atonement is one of the only things in the church that we specifically say is a mystery and that is impossible to understand. <laughs> it's one of the only things that the general authority will say through some process that we cannot understand, this thing happened, right? Yeah. Um, so, I, I wish I could remember where I read this, um, but I recently read um, an article or a blog post or something about Boyd K. Packer's famous um, allegory of the mediator. Yeah, this is what I'm drawing on. Yes, and it's something that I've drawn on also quite a bit. And something that was startling to me to learn from this article, and I'll have to try really hard to remember where I read it so we can include it in the show notes. Uh, but this was kind of a Pat Packer's view of this this allegory which has had such a big influence on our generation um, is kind of a change from the way people looked at it before this idea that justice and mercy both need to be paid um, is a new idea um, mercy is and, and it comes back to this um, idea of really believing that the atonement is infinite, right? Like, um, I'm lucky. Hey, why don't you plug Dialogue while I'm, while I'm Googling? <laughs> We're a proud member of the Dialogue Podcasting <laughs> Network, a fine collection of, of uh, podcasts that uh, cover uh, church issues and history through a rigorous and uh, consistent of examination. And we recommend folks check it out. Good stuff. Essentially, that our, the way we think about justice and mercy has been hugely influenced by Packer's allegory, and um, that it's not the way that this was talked about in the past. So. Okay, so let's let's um, let's wrap this up then. So this kind of 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 thought and examination is exactly what I want to be doing, thinking about difficult um, doctrinal issues and even philosophy in this case of today is um is awesome and it's super fun uh and this year what we're going to do is we're going to be we're going to be looking at correlation right in the church yeah. the idea is that we're going to keep going back to this uh, to this to this changing church right how doctrines that used to be doctrines are now not doctrines and new ones have arisen right through this continuing yeah. re continually restored church we're going to look at and and at the very end of the show i want to mention that in some ways the thesis of this season will be the book that you mentioned earlier the the um making of modern mormonism right david overcame yeah this perfect book. modern mormonism yeah right so my copy will be you said you read from the epigraph my copy will be arriving next week. And um, we're going to be covering quite a bit. It's by Gregory Prince, 2005. 
hardcover is 25 bucks on Amazon. All right, Eric, I'm looking forward to this year.